When my kids were really little, my oldest son uh, said something. Well, he said a lot of funny things, but we were sitting around a fire one time, and he had this stick, and he was sticking the stick in the fire. And then he just kind of got this mesmerized kind of look on his face. He just stared at it, just kind of watched it burn. And all of a sudden, out of his little raspy little kid voice, I heard him say, I totally get why kids want to play with fire. Fire is mesmerizing. We love it. There's something about watching the flames dance. It's captivating for us. Fire is a powerful biblical image of the presence of God. You see it right from Genesis to Revelation. This powerful image of fire that illuminates and can also consume and can also refine. Our text for this morning is Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3, where we consider the fire of God in our lives. It says this, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. This is God's word. This provocative and powerful, amazing image of fire. The crucible... And the furnace, these ancient tools that they used to separate the impurity from the pure substance. Turn up the heat and watch the properties separate. Turn up the heat and watch and see what's supposed to be there. And watch the separation of all the things that aren't supposed to be there. This powerful picture. And it says that in the same way that when you crank the heat up in the crucible for the silver and the furnace for the gold, the Lord is this fire that tests the hearts. And to test, um, we could expound that. This could be translated a lot of ways. Hebrew is this poetic and imaginative language. And as you know, if you speak any language, there's a range of meaning. You could translate it with a number of words. So I'm going to just give you a couple others to get you to think about how the Lord, this fire, tests the hearts. He is thoroughly examining the nature of something. He is ascertaining all of the faults, all of the imperfections, all of the impurities. But why is he doing that? I mean, what's his posture? Our God is a God of love. Our God was a God of love before the universe existed. Our God is not a singularity. He's a trinity. I mean, mean, if he's a singularity, I say this all the time, then the cosmos and everything that we know spun out of from power, sheer power. But God is not a singularity. He's a trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, this enjoyment of love and relationship, this eternal love. Everything that is spun forward from love. The world was created to function and flourish on love. The world is broken everywhere there is a place, an action that is devoid of love. And so how is this loving Trinitarian God, what is his motive for testing? What is his posture for testing? I told a little story about my son with fire. I'll tell a little story about me with fire. I remember that when I first discovered as a little boy that I could harness the power of the sun with a magnifying glass. 
And I remember being in the backyard, burning leaves on, the, on pavement stones. Wow, I'm harnessing the power of the sun. And it didn't take me long to say, think to myself, I wonder if I could burn an ant with this. So I discovered that if you hone those skills enough, you can make crispy critters. Is that your image of God? I mean, is that the, the tone of the texts that say that God is a God? I mean, it's serious. He's serious. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, you know, the way that he sort of used a God in allegory, God is a great lion. He's not tame, but he is good. And so if our God is loving and good, what is this posture? Is he, is he like I was as a kid, just saying, you know, I'm just going to turn the heat up on your life and let's just see what happens. Is he a vindictive ogre? Does he get some sort of dark pleasure from testing his children? No, he is not a vindictive ogre. That's not the tone of understanding God's testing. He is a loving father. There is a goal in God's testing. It says that the Lord tests the heart. In Hebrew, the labah, which is to say the inner man, the inner person. It's to say the, uh, he is testing the inner self, our inclinations. He is very purposefully turning up the heat in the life, lives of his children in various ways. And he does it because he's, he's testing our appetites, our determinations, our will. Because as the heat gets turned up in our lives, our appetites become apparent, our will becomes apparent, our priorities become apparent. I mean, a lot of things show up and become very apparent. And he is a loving father who does this with a very specific goal. Why is he testing his children? He, he's not just this cosmic judge over your actions who just looks down in condemnation, action after action, and goes, you missed it there, you missed it there, you missed it there. This is actually insight into the heart of God, the fact that he tests his children. And I'm going to get to the reason he does it. Because what this reveals about our God is that he's not merely sitting as a judge over our actions. The whole purpose of his testing is so that the spirit who now indwells us and renews our hearts will reform our actions. There's a whole... There's a whole... Uh, intentionality behind the testing of his children. You know, if we could be transformed without fire, if we could be transformed without testing, if you could just be transformed and become a mature believer by sitting back and listening to intellectual lectures, then the incarnation of Jesus was just like divine overkill. If that's how you became truly spiritual. Devoid of testing. But we don't. This is not how we become mature children at all. We can't just sit back and say, well, if I just uh, sit on my deck with an espresso and my Bible, this is how transformation gets done in my life. No, it is not. No transformation happens intellectually. And we say, well, I don't know. It just seems to me that God's word is powerful and that it alone may be able to transform my life. Not a part not apart from engaging with our brothers and sisters, not apart from the testing that just comes with, with being human. It's not. Jesus Christ did not incarnate in human flesh because by giving greater teaching, more profound teaching, deeper teaching, people could transform. What, what actually happened 
when Jesus did the, the most intense teaching that any religious rabbi had ever seen? What, was the, what, what happened in the religious heart? It's interesting. They weren't transformed, it just got harder. In the same way that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, here's Jesus interpreting the scriptures, and the response on the hardened heart is, it just gets harder. They don't say, oh, thank you for that teaching. Nobody's ever interpreted the scriptures quite like that. I'm a new person. That's not what happened in the, in the Pharisees. That only happened in the hearts of those whose hearts were being tested. Who, when the heat got turned up, the reaction was not that they became hard. Hey, what are you saying? Are you saying that I don't get it? What, what are you saying? What are you saying? They didn't get hard. Their heart was actually melted. And this is the, 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 this is the uh, response of the testing of God. The scripture, right from the very beginning, what it presents in Genesis 3, when we fell, what it presents is that at the core, at the core of, of, of humanity's fallenness is not a lack of education. It's not a lack of intellect. At the core of it, it's a wayward appetite. It's a will that says, I don't need God, I'll be God, thanks. It's a proclivity and an inclination to say, don't tell me what is right and wrong, what is true and false. I will decide for myself, thank you. I don't need God, I'll be God. That is at the core of humanity's problem. And that cannot be solved merely through right information or greater information. It comes through testing. I don't like that. You don't like that. We wish it came another way. We wish it could be a little more clinical, a little more sanitized. We wish it could just kind of be like, give me the right information and then I'm going to move on and I'm going to transform. But it comes through this testing. But again, not from a vindictive ogre, not from an angry God, but from a loving father. You know, um, Descartes, French philosopher, famously said, I think, therefore I am. And since the Enlightenment, we have in, we have been thoroughly drenched in the idea that the way to solve the world's problems is through education, information. If we could just be more, if we could just be intellectualized into a helpful and proper way of thinking, then things would be good. And we, we love this idea that we could solve the world's problems if we could just educate ourselves in a different way. But now here we find ourselves in 2021 with another problem, and the problem is that everybody gets to operate on their own set of facts. It's not just Descartes saying, I think, therefore, I am. It's not just the Enlightenment period. But we have sort of, as, as the West, seen ourselves, to borrow a phrase from James K. Smith, who's the professor of philosophy at Calvin College, we see ourselves as like brains on sticks. And the body is just sort of this vehicle that moves the brain around. And we're essentially thinking beings. But what the Bible presents over and over and over is that it's not merely that we're thinking beings that need to think the right way. We are appetitive and loving beings that love the wrong things. And so we need to be truly transformed and not merely intellectually educated. And Thomas Cramner was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1500s, and I'll borrow from him. When he sort of summarized what he was seeing in the scripture, the need for the Lord to test the hearts, he summarized it by saying that what the heart loves, the will goes after and the mind justifies. You can justify anything if it's in line with what you wanted in the first place. And so testing, as we see in Scripture, and as you read from sort of Genesis to Malachi to see what was going on in the lives of God's children, 
testing always comes through adversity. Whether it's sorrow or sickness or temptation or relational tensions or economic or political stresses, we find that humanity is like this cog in this machine, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, that sort of reached too high and it fell down and now the whole machine is, is off kilter. And because all of humanity is sort of off kilter, the testing always comes through all of these various stresses, like all of these things that happen in the world, pandemics as an example. But every time something arises, whatever it is, pick your trial, pick your fire. It reveals what is in our hearts. It shows us things that we'd rather not see. The testing always comes this way. And that's a disturbing list of things. I'd prefer that 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 wasn't the list of things. You and I would prefer that, as you read through the scriptures, we didn't see that God permitted these things. Or even uses stronger language in the scriptures that said God would send these things. We don't like that at all. We're like, "This this is a cosmic ogre I'm not on board with. I don't want a part of any of this. But what is his intention, though? What is the heart of God behind all the testing? Well, he's certainly not trying to destroy his children. He's trying to do something incredible in his children. And it's not like anybody's life is adversity free. God uses adversity. The fire that the Lord uses to test our heart, like the crucible in the furnace, it's adversity. And it's not like if you say, that's it, I just reject God. I wish that we had some sort of cosmic Easter bunny, cosmic Santa Claus. Just give me cosmic Santa that just gives me the easy, comfortable life uh, that I wish that I had. A God who every single decision I make, he's on board with it. All of the feelings and all of the emotion and all of the desires that I have, God's already like, I'm fine with that. Give me a God that small. Give me a God so small that he never challenges me and he never disagrees with me. Give me that God. Even if you rejected the God of the Bible and said, I reject all of this, you still are left with this thing called a life of fiery trials. It's not like if God wasn't involved in the life of the Christian, you would somehow have this adversity-free life. Nobody is living an adversity-free life. To be human is to have to grapple with trial, suffering, adversity. You can't get through life unless you can handle those sorts of things. And you can choose to go through life without the God of the cosmos who incarnated himself in Christ. You can choose to go it alone, but you're not living a life adversity-free. So our God, he's a loving father, and he uses all this adversity, and he uses the sorrow, the tragedy, the suffering. He turns it all on its head so that it will not consume us. It will not destroy his children. He takes all of these things that are absolutely nothing like him, that don't resemble him, and he uses them to refine his children. And like a fire, he wisely and lovingly illuminates what's really going on inside us. He uses all of these things to illuminate what's going on inside us. He draws us to a lifestyle of repentance so that through that repentance, he can actually consume the sinful tendencies that are plaguing us and refine us. God's purpose in testing us is to beautify us. He makes us beautiful. He takes all the terrible, horrible, disastrous things And instead of having them consume us, he uses them to beautify us, to refine us. In the book of Job, chapter 23, after Job had gone through horrendous suffering and horrible things in life, he says in verse 10, When God has tried me, I shall come out as gold. 
It's the wisdom of the scripture saying, what's God really up to in all of the terrible things that you and I have to deal with week to week? He's making us beautiful because he's curving us out of ourselves, up towards him and out towards others. You know, there's an accusation at the beginning of Job, and that's, if you don't understand the accusation at the beginning, the context is going to be lost on you. But the context of the entire book of Job at the beginning is the Satan, the enemy, the Satan comes to God and says, Job does not love you. He loves you because you gave him good stuff. Take away the stuff, he will curse your name. The whole book of Job starts with the premise that nobody really loves God. They only love God for the nice life. Take away the nice life, introduce some trials, introduce a little bit of fire, and nobody loves God. They just go, well, it isn't, I mean, God isn't useful. What's the point? That's the whole point of the religious, uh, that's the sort of the context of the religious heart and mind. They don't find God beautiful. They only find him useful. But here what we see, the whole point of God's testing of the hearts is to make us beautiful. He is beautiful. We've been made in the image of the one who is beautiful. And there is a lot of dross and impurity that's got to get burned out of our life. And it will not happen sitting on our decks in comfort with an espresso in one hand and our Bibles in the other. I know we wish that was how God operated. We wish that's how the Spirit did renewal. That's how we understand you know, beautiful things in Scripture and God can teach and commune with us. And those are glorious, wonderful times of meditation. Things get burned off in trials. You wish I didn't say that. I wish I didn't say that. But this isn't a one-off text. This is repeatedly throughout the wisdom of Scripture that this is how God has chosen to do it. Not because he's vindictive, but because he's loving. First Peter chapter 1 picks up on this wisdom, picks up on the wisdom of the Proverbs, of the God that tests the hearts, picks up on the wisdom of Job. And in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter after? Peter's writing to this church that's suffering and spread out all over the place. And he's like, God is going to make you beautiful. He is going to take everything in your life that is not beautiful and he's going to use it to make you beautiful. Over and over and over and over, we see the goodness of God in this. Go back to Genesis 50. Go back to the beginning of the Bible. What does Joseph say to his brothers at the end of, you know, the, at the end of the, all of the calamity of being sold into slavery in Egypt and all the rest of it? What does he say as they're bowing down? He says, you know, what you meant for evil, God used for good. What did God do with all of the fiery tests and trials? Made him beautiful. What's he doing in you and I? He's making us beautiful. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. You know, I mean, still not though. Why? Some of you are really bothered right now by the fact that numerous times throughout this sermon I have said that you uh, are not refined on your deck with a Bible and a coffee. And I've intentionally written it in here a number of times. And some of you are like, woof. I'm, a, I'm like, you're, some of you are into, you're mentally crafting an email. I just want to sh- let you know. So let me just, this is my preemptive pastoral strike. I'm going to save you a lot of time in that email that you're crafting in your mind right now. <laughs> There's a reason the Lord has chosen to do this. And it's because it is the, in the process of the fire, 
when the impure substances start to get shown, the process reveals that the way that you see yourself, the way that you appraise yourself, and the way that God sees you and sees your heart and appraises your heart may not be the same thing. See, when I'm sitting on my deck with my espresso in one hand and my Bible in the other, I sort of have a self-appraisal that's available. I can see myself in a certain way, understand my heart in a certain way. I can be like David and pray, and I can say, Lord, search me and know me. Try my heart, show me. And like, I can do that. And to a degree, God does do renewal in me in that way. But I got to tell you, most of the growth in my life the last two years has not been on my deck with a Bible in one hand and a coffee in the other. It has been in the fire. The trials and the tests and the frustrating, difficult moments with my wife and my kids and us as a community, with the city and with everybody and their brothers' views on how we ought to handle things. I mean, it's been in the fire because the fire has shown me, oh, wow, I have an appraisal of myself that I don't think is entirely accurate. In fact, it has come to my attention through this fire. I'm not nearly as mature as I thought I was an hour ago. Please tell me I'm not the only one who's come to this conclusion. Let me give you a little picture of what I'm talking about when I talk about appraisal. I see there's some, some teenagers, younger kids in here. When I'm talking about appraisal, here's the thing. This week, I'm on AutoTrader. I'm looking at cars. Why? Because I do that every day. It's part of my formation. Okay? So I just constantly looking at cars. What's going on in the market? What's available? And what catches my eye is this Lamborghini Gallardo for $25,000. If you know anything about cars, a Lamborghini Gallardo, Superleggera, it's not $25,000. And as I clicked on it, because of course it was clickbait, I clicked on it, and oh, it's not a Lamborghini Gallardo for $25,000. It's actually a 1986 Pontiac Fiero with a body kit on it, some stickers, Superleggera sticker for $25,000. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because if it... For those of you who don't know anything about cars, which is probably some of you who could care less about this analogy, when the Pontiac Fiero was new, it was not worth $25,000. When you bought a Pontiac Fiero in 1986, it was not $25,000. What in the world are you doing selling a Pontiac Fiero that was never worth $25,000 for $25,000, a car that, if you have your blinker on and a coffee in your hand, the engine explodes. That's why they stopped making them. They had a nasty habit of catching on fire. For $25,000. You put a, a kit on it, it looks like a Lamborghini. The appraisal was ridiculous. How did you arrive at that number? Here's the answer. It wasn't appraised by anybody with any qualifications. It was a self-appraisal. He went out and he looked at it and he went, Woo! Whoa! Here's what I think is going on. And without the fire, you and I are like the Pharisees. Woo! Here's what I think is going on. Oh, here's how spiritually mature I see myself. A pandemic rolls along. All of a sudden, we're like, oh my goodness, I've got to navigate conversations with my family, my church family. Things are getting rough. Everybody does not see the world as I am. Am I as patient as I thought? Am I as understanding as I thought? Am I, do I, are my commitments to family, friendships, church, worship, where I thought... Oh my goodness, the self-appraisal. You can't self-appraise yourself. And that is why the Lord says, I'm going to do the appraisal. And the appraisal is going to come through the testing. It's going to come through the testing of fire. Now, I have good news. 
really good news. When the trial and the adversity comes and you and I feel like we are being tested by fire, and surely we are being tested by fire, our God will not abandon us to be consumed. Our God is the fourth man in the fire. He is with us in the fire. Daniel chapter 3, Babylon takes over. The people of Israel are slaves. Everything is an utter disaster. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego refuse to bow. The king says, we're executing these guys. And the means of execution is we're throwing them in a furnace. So they're thrown in the furnace. The fire is up. They look in the furnace. There's a fourth man. Who's the fourth man? Here's the pre-incarnate Christ. Here is our God with us in the furnace. That's not a parlor trick. That's not just a miracle for miracle's sake. That's like a very vivid, important picture of who your God is for you when the fire gets turned up in your life, which it surely has, and it surely is, and it surely will be again. He is with us in the fire. He does his best work in you and I in the fire. He loves us in the fire. He carries us through the fire. He is beautifying you and I in the fire. He is showing us things we wish we didn't see. He is showing us aspects of the dark, unevangelized parts of our heart that we're embarrassed by, that we just really wish weren't there. And he's showing them to us, and he's not condemning us and saying, you disgust me. He is saying, my child, let me refine you. Let me beautify you. He is with us in the fire. This is the sign, the God who is with us in the fire, that points to God's redemptive plan, that all of us who trust him in the end, we will not be consumed by by the inevitability of death. We will be risen to enjoy the renewed creation and eternal life. Jesus Christ did not get a free pass on testing. He was tested. And he passed every test with flying colors. And you and I do not. And the good news of the gospel is he lived the perfect life you and I are not living. He passed all the tests that you and I fail. His perfect, righteous record has been accredited to you and I, a very purposeful accounting term in the Bible, by the way, accredited to our accounts. His perfect record of passing every test has been given to those who are constantly sort of failing tests so we are saved by his grace alone. He unites himself to us. His spirit indwells us so that as we go out to face the various trials by fire, church, we can be strong and courageous because we are loved, we are tested, we are refined, we are beautified by the fourth man in the fire. In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray.